Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, we continue our eight-episode miniseries on Netflix's hip-hop evolution documentary. Nate is joined by Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson, his cohorts from the YouTube show If the Shoes Fit. This week, they discuss the fourth episode of Hip Hop Evolution, The Birth of Gangster Rap, which takes us from Schoolie D in Philly to Ice-T, Eazy-E, and N.W.A. in Los Angeles. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by my colleagues, Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson, for our appreciation of Netflix's Hip Hop Evolution. We're on episode four, part one, The Birth of Gangsta Rap. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, now we're. Perfect, perfect timing, actually. <laughs> Indeed. It's always time for Gangsta Rap, Eugene. Always time for Gangsta Rap. So they've covered, I felt like they jump to this one a tad early but yeah they did as big as you know a chronology as they're covering i can see why they wanted to get to this i also want to i see why they wanted to get to this in the first season because obviously dre and snoop dogg as big as you know run dmc and the bc boys and everybody were dre and snoop dogg were multi-platinum multi-multi-platinum all NW. you have to do with dre is say billionaire and you can just stop period yeah. that's it yeah 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 and uh, so, but we, we start out in L.A. when it was a backwater, when it was not hip to hip hop. Although, you know, they're saying it wasn't hip hop, but it was hip hop. It was just a style of hip hop that was corny. Yeah, it was electro. It was techno. It was planet rock, which was yeah. popular in New York, you know, for what, two, three years. And L.A. kept it going for five, six, seven years beyond that. Well, mostly because of the dancing, which you could do on like the Venice boardwalk, the mm -hmm. popping and the locking and stuff like that, which is popular in 
you know, before it, that that was a spear point for hip hop in L.A., I'd say. I mean, that's what they say. Ice-T was a, a dancer before he was anything, right? Yep. And and uh, Dre and uh, DJ Yella, later to be yeah. in N.W.A., were part of the world class wrecking crew, which was all into the techno electro type stuff. And Ice-T, they don't go into this in the show, but Ice-T had numerous electro singles. If you can dig them up. Yeah. Yeah. They're about as funny looking as him and the pastels and the ponytail. Which is, which is why it was great when Charlie Murphy put them on blast on the uh, True Stories and the Chappelle Show. And he goes, you guys in L.A. trying to act hard now, but back in the 80s, we remember. And they, you know, which, of course, during some of the numerous beefs, I remember somebody put up a photograph of uh, Dre it was easy, silver, easy E did it. Yeah, yeah. easy yeah, and the silver suit. The Talk about a G suit. thing. Used to be a she yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> Party ass. <laughs> uh, which makes me think of Ready for the World. I wonder what Oh, oh, Sheila. I love those guys. Yeah. The classic stuff. Classic stuff. But let's stick. Let's stay on focus. Let's stay. <laughs> stay on topic. So, until Ice T released Six in the Morning. LA is this backwater into the techno and electro stuff that's, you know, passe and corny in New York. But Ice T properly recognizes. Like they start with Ice T, and I understand why they did it, because it's about gangster rap. So you expect it to be about LA. You got to focus on LA. That's the nexus of the story. But Ice T points out that the first gangster rapper was Philly's Schooly D, who's one of my personal favorites. I got to see Schooly D with a live band in Austin, Texas in 88. And it totally, totally blew me away. It was opened up for Fishbone. And then uh, Tim Kerr had a band, a funk band at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep. You know Tim Kerr. And uh, I do. The, they, the, you know, like all Tim Kerr bands, he was in the Big Boys and Poison 13, a number. Great live. And Bad Mother Goose was terrible on record, but it was an incredible show live. And, and School of D with the live band was was killing it. And, and and so they go to Philly and interview him. And, and I thought it was funny that he would only agree to interview him if the dude brought him a cake. And and he did. It's a man after my own heart, man. You get baked goods. I, so, so usually because you put me on the guest list, I go, yeah, yeah, but what do I get out of it? <laughs> and the guy says, I'll tell you what, man, I'll make you some cinnamon rolls. And I said, all right, if you don't have the cinnamon rolls, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. I'm not going to let you in. And so he calls, somebody says, hey, there's a guy, his name Oliver, at the front door for you. I go, the guy, I said, where are they? And the guy goes, right here, bro. And he takes the thing off, and they were like, great. Of course, I didn't eat them because I was completely paranoid that he's going to poison me. There you go, like like Michael Jordan before the Utah Jazz game. Do you see that in the last dance? I yes. haven't seen that. So he, yes, like the kids. flu game, instead of having the flu, it was food poisoning, allegedly. He ordered yeah, a yeah. pizza oh. from the only pizza place that was open. Yeah. Fatal mistake, near fatal mistake, but Jordan came back. But Schooly D, jaded showbiz veteran, only does the interview if he gets some cake. And and <laughs> my favorite, uh, well, I wanna I wanna before we get to Schooly D though, there was a quote from Arabian Prince that I thought was telling that uh, Uncle Jam had already moved up and they were doing like sports arenas and the convention center, five ten thousand people, no MCs, only DJs. So people were coming just to see the DJs perform, and they got uh, the guy from Cypress Hill who's pointing out, you know, the kids would be waiting for those shows and then freaking out over, you know, what they were playing, what records they were playing, and there would be pop locking and battling, rap battling to it afterwards. So the scene wasn't 
totally. I mean, to me, if like you're getting 10,000 people yep. at the Coliseum to see DJs, you've got a hip hop scene, even if it is a little bit corny. But yeah. it seemed like it seemed to go back. I mean, just that when you talk about just the DJ scene, it reminded me of the earlier episodes of Hip Hop Evolution where they were starting in New York, right? When Grandmaster Flash was just a DJ playing, you know? So yeah. they were a little behind yeah. in that way, I guess. Yeah, but everybody's got to go through evolution and, you know, you can't, no a shortcuts. Evolution. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but back, back to the gangster beginning. So, so. Schooly D. I have to I have to say with Schooly D, I, I still maintain a New Yorker's contempt of a kind of unspoken but just a barely kind of subcutaneous contempt for Schooly D. Just because fashion wise, I just thought he's Philly guy. The guy, you know, I just wasn't. So I had to separate him. I like I couldn't look at him while I was listening to the music. I just had to do it because I didn't like I didn't like his style. And as far as I was concerned. He wasn't the first hard guy out there. There were other hard guys out there, you know. Um, but all of a sudden, everybody was talking about Schooly D, Schooly D. So, uh, all right, you know. Was I that mean, just he, on the PSK stuff, the first yeah, single? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Saturday Park, Night. Parkside Killers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because his second, third album got nowhere. Like, when I saw him live, I was totally astonished. Loved him, ran out and bought the only vinyl I could find, which was his third album, Am I Black Enough for You, which nobody liked. Nobody yeah. paid any attention to that thing. And and I wore that out. And then later I got all the Saturday night and uh, with all the PSK and all that stuff. But the School of D story I liked was when he when he talks about how they go to the studio to record PSK, they're stoned out of their minds, and he just puts the reverb on it and tell the speakers there in the studio, the engineers, like, You're gonna get me fired, bro, you're gonna get me fired. Like, no, no, fuck that. Let's let's tape it like this. <laughs> and the next morning he listens to it and he's like, Jesus, what was I thinking with the reverb? And he's about he's headed to the studio to go change it and his homies have made copies and passed around the neighborhood and people are giving him ovations walking out the door and then they tell him if he changed he was like man i was about to go change it we'll shoot you if you change it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's good that's good yeah but then they switch back to ice t who admits and, and you got to give him points for just fessing up to it he totally swiped the cadence for psk yeah of course morning he would have been know. a fool not to come on you know it's like, it's like yeah. it was like oh, who's a, a pharrell trying to say they didn't rob him and robin thick didn't rob Mar marvin Gaye. Oh, are yeah. you kidding yeah. are you kidding well again that's oh, a get out of here he used to go out and party the melodies and the chords are totally different I mean, that's that's it, it, they still the feel of the of the song, which is not stealing. Well, one thing that's interesting is um, apparently, even though he was giving credit uh, to School ED, they didn't have in this interview what they had in other interviews, where he talks about six in the morning and Criminal Minded hitting the, at the same time or around the same time. So, you know, in terms of just expanding, you know, giving credit where credit is due, you know, I thought I it was interesting that he didn't, yeah, that he didn't, mm. that in this interview, either they didn't include it or whatever, like they didn't talk about BDP around the same time engaging in, which would make it even more interesting in like what you were saying, Eugene, with regards to like, you know, School ED wasn't the first, but then again, at least yeah. with the iced tea and the six in the morning, he definitely wasn't, you know, second. MC Light. <laughs> sorry. That was a name I was trying to remember from three shows ago. <laughs> sorry. Well, sorry. We, we brought it, we, you know, we got it. We got to cover this stuff. 
But the, the other quote, the IST quote that I thought was interesting was if you get, he goes, if you get yourself connected to players, the world flips backwards. Doing what's right is for suckers, and you're living in a world with all these villains, fiends, and scandals, and you take pride in that. The world actually becomes backwards. And that's pretty classic. That makes me think of like William Burroughs and the whole underground, you know, hobo jungle, the argot of thieves and all that stuff that, you know, is Jean, Jean, Jean Genet. Yeah, yeah, yeah French yeah. and American literary yeah. tradition. But I think the hip hop guys because they blew up so big and because the violence in LA in the eighties and all over the country in the early nineties was so bad, it's going to come back and blow up in everybody's faces in a few episodes or in a couple seasons. But for now it's artistic success. Another thing that I see said was, you know, he realized when he started getting into hip hop that he, he wasn't just going to live the game. I've got to document the game. And that, you know, is the whole redemptive power of art thing. But is that just bullshit, or is that is well, there the value? Well, the thing, the, the thing is, I mean, you can't tell the story, and I'm glad they don't try to. You can't tell the story without essentially talking about crack, right? And yeah. and you know, the the Crips and the Bloods were formed specifically uh, to people were realizing when they went to outlying uh, African American folks were realizing when they went to outlying beach communities. Uh, which were full of Okies uh, that they were getting beaten up. You know, it wasn't like you had a bunch of cats from Compton who were trying to surf. You just wanted to go to the beach. And so in the in the in the '60s, uh, they were getting their asses kicked. They said, "Okay, we're going to form a group to protect ourselves from these, uh, you know, uh, dirty white boys." And uh, and that's how they started. It wouldn't have ended up being this murderous cult had not been for a profit motive, which was introduced by Freeway Ricky, CIA-funded, cheap cocaine turned into crack never would have happened which of course destroyed the rest of the country and made us all you know weaker meaner and uh, and really devastated lots of large portions of african american music up to and including today because a lot of these people who were croaking a friend of mine's sister had uh, had had a, a drug problem back in the day so you know permanent immunosuppressed and so on so um but without that these were just been gangs so it wasn't the music the music was just a kind of a harbinger in my mind, you know, uh, to a much more serious issue. They could chase hip hop guys. And uh, I, I watched a little bit ahead, sorry, the Southern way. They could chase hip hop guys. But the reality of it was that wasn't the seed. That, that, that wasn't the problem. And it wasn't until kids in the suburbs started getting high on crack and, and Ryan Gosling was playing a crack addicted teacher in this, whatever movie that was that, uh, that people start saying, oh, it's not, it's not a problem. It's a problem now problem yeah once once the opioids opioids hit the hillbillies you know people started to care a little bit but back back to our story so from there then they they segue to nwa and you've got these guys you know you've got uh, dr dre and dj yella who had been in the world-class wrecking crew doing the techno stuff and arabian prince who's been a producer prince, yeah. on on the scene and they're hanging out and they're frustrated they're hearing what ice T's done and they're frustrated with frankly not making that much money off the records they've been making and they're and they're thinking about doing something new and they're hanging out with this guy easy e who's a gangster you know arabian prince calls him this little napoleon little dictator motherfucker and you know it's straight up crazy and scary real street dude and he's got the money and he wants to put it up to fund this new project they've got and they, and they know ice cube and they know he's a talented lyricist easy's tight with mc wren who's a semi talent. <laughs> like, hey, he has I semi lines. I'm sorry, he sells Ram, but I'm wrong. No, 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 no
no, no. I love no, Brad, but no, come MC, on. He, no, 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 no. He's just no, no, no. the worst villain in every rhyme scheme. That's I mean, true. I, yeah, look, yeah. I don't care. He, he, he's, he is the unsung. He's, he's gotten short shrift in everything. The guy is, is. There are a lot worse people who are advanced a lot further than this cat. I like MC Ren. I think he's gotten the movie shit on him, and everybody's like, uh, he's like the Larry Fine of hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> It's just by comparison with Ice Cube and Dr. Dre, and you know their. Dr. Artists. Dre is not writing shit. It's Ice Cube. That's it. Well, Dre's the one doing the beats and the sounds. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. an essential part of this recipe. But the other thing was, it was also Dre's idea to make Easy E a rapper. And Arabian Prince tells that story. You know that Ice Cube has written Boys in the Hood, wrote it in eleventh grade, and Dre convinces Easy to record it. And Easy's got this great voice, although he can't rap. And so they they baby step him through recording this thing, punching line in line by line, line by line. Although I was just reading today in a book about Rakim, he also frequently punched his reps in line by line. So even the great ones have to do that sometimes. And so Easy, obviously, Boys in the Hood blows up. They put together the NWA and the Posse album, and which is a weird album. I mean, it's it's got some stuff from the DOC and his crew out in Texas, and then Arabian Prince stuff that is just totally didn't fit you know and i remember when nwa hit like in my hometown nwa was the first group that all the white boys loved i mean it it just blew up like nothing i'd ever but it seen. wasn't like magic it blew up when it, they hit mtv right that was most people's exposure to, M we to didn't nwa been having tv in my hometown we got mtv mm. and mcdonald's after moscow did so uh. The cassettes were just getting passed out, and it was just immediate. It was catnip for the rednecks. Uh, you know, we just all went crazy for this shit. You know, and and like me and my college boyfriends have been into Run DMC and the BCs and LL Cool J and Public Enemy before that, but NWA was the one that got over with everybody. I mean, it was just massive, massive impact, and that's what they get into with Tipper Gore and and the backlash that that you know this was fine and dandy when it's just. Black folks, yeah, the Parents Media Resource Council. You know, nobody cared when it was just the black kids listening to this stuff. But once it's hit in the suburbs, there was a massive freakout. And then they record Fuck the Police, and it's totally off the chain. And I love the quote from – they had the DJ Greg Mack from W. Day, which was the big L.A. hip-hop station. He was like, when they came out with that, everybody was like, oh, oh. But then all of us black guys were like, you know what? Fuck the police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but all, one one thing that they don't they they sort of maybe kind of touch on, but I, I can't really emphasize enough that there were two places in America where I was afraid of the police, and uh, Philly under Rizzo from the '60s was not a good place to be if, if you were a hippie, if you were anyway, if you were punk rock, if you anyway, de cops would straight up pull up on you. And if you looked at them funny, they'd say, what's up, chief? Get out the car and be chest to chest with you on the sidewalk for what would be apparently no, reckless eyeballing, no reason. And L.A. under Daryl Gates, mm. the pig Daryl Gates. And I don't say that easily. I got family with law, law enforcement, but Daryl Gates was a pig. And uh, uh, they were bad. They were bad, bad, bad. You know, a steady diet of SWAT and Adam-12 and Dragnet led, led these guys to think that they were like, they were just, it was something else, something else. 
So, so I have friends of mine from California who were like back in the day were like, fuck chips, you know, like, cause dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. fuck that. Like, that's not what they're like out there. And I was like, no, come yeah. on, Eric Estrada. Like, you know, so he's like, uh, Mexican, he's Puerto Rican. I was like, oh, okay. Nah, yeah. They put a zap on those guys' heads and those guys were, were miserable. So to come out with a song like fuck the police when it came out, that was, uh, you know, I mean, and they tie it into, you know, April 29th. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and 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 they and they tie it all together. When did you guys first hear any of this stuff, Eugene? Um, I moved at that. I think I'd have to say '87, and I because I had taken the money from Leonard Part Six, the Bill Cosby movie, and I bought my first house in East Palo, which at the time was the murder capital of uh, of America because of crack and drug dealing and so my plan was to buy the most expensive house i could find in the, in the worst area and so that's what i did several blocks from here now now that, that neighbor is all completely gentrified and uh one of my roommates at the time um brought brought the tape in and that's i go what, what is that shit you're playing and that was the first time i heard straight out of compton uh, he, he was you know he lived in east Baltimore. he's born and raised but he was straight up middle class. And I remember in an amusing way, he came out with a record. He goes, man, we're taking a road trip. You want to come with us? I go, where are you going? So we're going to Compton. <laughs> we want to, so they pull up at Compton, right? And these are black kids, you know, but they're like a couple of years younger than me. So I was like, I don't know, 26 and so they were like 20. And they go to Compton and they stop the car in the middle of the street and they run out to the monument that says, Welcome to Compton, and they were shot at. <laughs> like, get the fuck out of here! Blah, 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 blah. Because they got back in the car and pulled off. It's like people didn't want to be part of your fucking music video. Fuck you, you know. Uh, and Alexi? Well, so it's funny because my experiences were a different kind of thing than Eugene. So when I grew up, I grew up in Washington D.C., and my parents kept the house, but moved out to the suburbs after drug needles and crack. You know, we were, um, where we lived, the block behind us, Newton Street, was the corridor for the heroin trade for the East Coast. And so, um, you know, even though I didn't hold go to- on, Hold on, hold on, say, how old are you again? Uh, 48. So yeah, so, <laughs> so it happened was, when we went out there, so we went out and, um, I heard the NWA tape because we were going to South Broadway Baptist Church, which was this Native American church with Lumbee Indians who lived in Baltimore to work at the General Motors plant from North Carolina, Lumberton. And so um, a guy there said, hey, man, check this shit out. And he, in church, like, let me borrow an NWA tape. <laughs> and I went home and I listened to it. And I was like, the fuck? Like, it was like one of these things, like, scary to listen to. Like, at that time, it was the conscious rap. And then, like, they had, like, gunfire, like, a sound effects, and bitch this, and all this kind of stuff. And, like, you know, it was, it literally was, like, the reactions that people had in Hip Hop Evolution totally was it. Like, what the fuck is this? You know? And so, you know, it just, I didn't gravitate towards it after that because having grown up in an environment that was ravaged by crack and ravaged by drugs it wasn't a funny thing to me it wasn't a fun thing like knowing people who got murdered uh you know so it wasn't i did not identify with it and i didn't listen to it again until my 
uh, 20s, you know, when I, I got my brother got, and I listened to it, I was like, oh, shit, this is what people were talking about. You know, and you realize, like, okay, this is why this is adult music. Adult, as an adult, I enjoyed it more than I did as a teenager. Well, I have to say, and they don't talk about this at all, but I remember this, and I think, Nate, you remember this. So they came out with the record, the first record, and everybody, hipster, well, early versions of hipsters, everybody was completely into it. Madonna, Sandra Bernhardt, and then they came out with, and they didn't touch on this in the episode at all, their second record. It, it, and there was no sophomore slumping because this was completely rebarbative. All of their, like, lefty, yeah, you know, supporting the cause, listened to the second record, and they were like, we're done. These guys are so deeply damaged that we can't. And I want. And for those of you who haven't listened to the record, the, uh, the centerpiece and the one that I'm focused on very specifically is a song, To Kill a Hooker, in which they have a, uh, a skit on the record where they uh, kidnap a, a prostitute off the sex worker off the street, pull her into the car, and shoot her in the head, and dump her body out on the pavement. And that was a point at which, you know, all the all the kind of lefty fans were like, yeah, these guys are like, you know, they're leading the charge. Yeah, reporters from the front lines the struggle against the cops in L.A. They were like, okay, these guys are pathologically disturbed and we can't participate. So Madonna was out, Sandra Bernhardt was out, and there was some something perverse about the contrarian nature. Of, I didn't see it as self-sabotage because I, I I knew people would stick well, around. Well, I asked you to quit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so it was uh, – and then, of course, it segued pretty nicely into the Ghetto Boys, uh, you know, some of their stuff that was just aggressively like horror movie as mm-hmm. like horror core. Yep, yep. Right. So, Grave Diggers. Yeah. yeah. And and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And to clear up a little confusion, there's Indo and the Posse, which is a compilation album that, yeah. to me, that was the first record. That was the first one we got yeah. our hands on. It had Easy's version of Boys in the Hood, and it yeah, had yeah, a couple yeah. NWA songs, and then it had some Arabian Prince and some stuff from the DOC, although it wasn't called the DOC. It was whatever his crew was called before that. Then there's Straight Out of Compton, and then there's the one, I'm not even going to say the title. EFL, there's a bunch of Just do the backwards. Evil's nagging. Yeah. And and that one, I mean, it was clear like the expiration date had passed. Well, it's because uh, of Ice Cube. That, That's the thing. I remember specifically when Ice yeah, Cube they lost left, Ice Cube. I got into, I was more into Ice Cube than I was into NWA. So when that first America's Most Wanted came out, because they yeah. recorded in New York, with the Bomb Squad the bomb and Hank squad. Shockley, that's what got me into Ice Cube. Because the transition from Public Enemy to Ice Cube. And so I totally was yeah. Team Ice Cube when they broke up, and when when Dr. Dre was rapping more clearly lyrically, they fell off, and you know just didn't have the same you know. Yeah, they lost the but I I remember getting the Ice Cube album and being super hyped for it because we were way into Public Enemy, we were way into NWA, and, and so it was like, and I for me I never got into that album that much. What? I got I. I just didn't. Once you know, upon I, a time in the projects, yo, I damn near had to wreck a hoe. You know, like, <laughs> rats up your ass. And I liked some of the tracks. It's just that my level of anticipation was so mm, No, that makes sense. That, that makes sense. That there was no way. Uh, that makes sense. Whereas, I, didn't, no whereas I did not have uh, Straight Outta Comp. I didn't own any NWA stuff. You know, my first no. buying thing- something was, like, was America's Most Wanted. The other thing about Straight Outta Compton is it's a classic 80s cassette in that it's like David Bowie's big hit album where there's three killer songs to start the album and then it just falls off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, Express Yourself and a couple other good songs on that, but there are 
tons of stinkers on Straight Outta Compton. And so we used to spend hours taking the best songs off Easy E, Straight Outta Compton, and the first DOC tape, and and making the ultimate, you know, five star album. That Which Easy E songs did you like? Boys in the Hood, man. Oh, I thought you I meant mean, oh from a solo. You know, like any of those. Yeah, easier easy said than it. done. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, Easy Easy <laughs> doesn't had a solid three good songs yeah. on it or three yeah. great songs yeah. on it and then and then the filler was really bad and the doc was good all the way through that was what we always got stuck with because you needed a couple of doc songs to round it out but you could never pick you know what doc songs would you pick but they you know but, but but in the neighborhood that i was living at the time you know where i got my first house you know, everybody was rolling through the neighborhood playing that stuff and uh, in true cr- contrarian fashion. Like, I had it in the car, my 67 Chevy at the time, but uh, I was just super obsessed with The Great Adventures of Slick Rick. Ah. So everybody is like, and I'm playing Back to Dating Sluts and Stars. Slick Rick, lottie dottie, we like the party. You know, it was like, the fuck is that guy listening to? Yeah, baby, Slick Rick. So yeah, uh, we love the Slick Rick album too. But we'll come back and we'll talk about the L.A. riots and Dr. Dre's follow-up with the Chronic. Here's Schooly D doing Saturday Night. It was Saturday night and I was feeling kind of sporty. The bar cut me a 40. Got kind of high and uh, kind of drunk, so I kicked the ass of this little punk. Forgot my key, it had to ring my bell. My mama came first, he said, Who the hell? Wait, mama, wait, it's me, your little son. Before I knew what my mom And now a word from our sponsors. And here's Boys in the Hood from Easy E. Cruising down the street in my sixth fall. Jocking the slapping the Went to the park to get the scoop. Knuckleheads out there, cold shooting some hoops. A car pulls up, who can it be? A fresh El Camino rolling Kilo G. He rolled down his window and he started to say, It's all about making that GTA. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. You come talking that trash, we'll pull your car. <laughs> it's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're returning to complete our episode about hip hop evolution, episode four. This is part two of that. Last time we talked about NWA and the birth of gangster rap. And this time we're going to wrap it up with the LA riots and Dr. Dre's The Chronic. What great timing. Timing. It's everything. It is. It is, it is very, uh, very apropos here in 2020. So after the big kerfluffles about fuck the police and NWA's, the rest of NWA's oeuvre in the late 80s, when the L.A. rebellion hit the streets in 92 and the aftermath of the miscarriage of justice in the Rodney King case, when all four police officers, or was it seven or whatever, when the whole mob of killer cops was acquitted for the beating that anybody with eyes could see they had inflicted on Rodney King and L.A. erupts in flames, that prompted a sea change in how N.W.A. was perceived. No longer were they seen as dangerous miscreants who were creating trouble out of whole cloth. Rather, they were seen as prophets and seers who were telling the story from the front lines. Did you guys have a similar shift, any kind of shift like that? Because I was just an NWA fan, and then I was appalled by the Rodney King thing, 
and it didn't really impact my thinking on on it. You guys, when you say it didn't impact your thinking, that you're, you're saying, in other words, I already liked the NBA. So okay, but but you're talking about the situation. So your yeah. awareness of the and and in fact, I was less surprised by the LA by the Rodney King incident and the LA rights because I've been listening to NWA so in a way right, it had right, it, right, it had prepared right, right. it laid the mm, groundwork for my prep work but but yeah well I, I you know the, the thing is if you were a punk rocker in California I mean my relationships with cops are pretty were pretty peaceful or pretty mellow New York cop in the late 70s he didn't want any trouble wasn't given any trouble you know he didn't want to write a report he didn't want you to make him write a report. So it was pretty easy. I didn't start having problems with police until I got to California. And it was pretty unpleasant and pretty miserable. Worse so in LA. I wrote a piece about hanging out with John Messias from Circle One, who was eventually shot in the head by a cop. Uh, I, you know, a terrible story. I'm not going to go into again here. But the reality of it was Richard Pryor had already talked about, hey, you know, white people don't think it's, we're just making it up, you know. And, um, I, I knew Daryl Gates, who had talked about chokeholds. Well, they work differently on black necks than they work on, you know. Um, so I just, I, 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 you know, the Rodney King uh, didn't surprise me, but I was as surprised as anybody else on April 29th. I don't know enough about California, still don't. I mean, now, because of infamy, I do. But I didn't know that the move change of venue to Simi Valley meant anything because I didn't realize it was a bedroom community for retired cops. Um, uh, you know, it seemed like uh, like everybody else. I believe that these guys who were caught on video after video after showing of the video, 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 that it was open and shut case and clearly, you know, <laughs> abrogation of responsibility to to uphold the law. And so it was shock and surprise. And um, it was it was sooner than the George Floyd thing. It was almost instantaneous. I mean, I think it was around four o'clock. I must but have been at work. But NWA, how did it impact your thinking about NWA? Uh, I, it did it it, 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 it. You know, it was like some some kid had run up to me screaming about a fire in a building, and then I look and I saw the fire in the building. It's like you know, I've heard of such things, so I didn't <laughs> see them as I didn't see them as Sears or prophets. I'd already known that California cops were bad news well before, but well before them, and mostly because of the whole punk rock thing and them just showing up to shows, beating people up indiscriminately. And these were like suburban white kids that they were beating up. They didn't beat me up, but uh, you know. <laughs> and Alexi, that's the same. You? Well, you know, I wasn't a fan of NWA until. Uh, you know, until I was maybe 10 plus years, 10, 15 years after they came out. I mean, I was always more of a conscious rapper fan. You know, I was in the public enemy and uh, groups like that that had something to say. Like I was more to Ice-T than I was into, um, into NWA. I was more to Ice Cube after he left nwa than i was into uh nwa and then you know especially with like death certificate and like when he got more uh, political so for me nwa had kind of been appropriated already by white suburban teenagers um when nwa came out I I, yeah my family had moved to uh and we still kept the house in dc uh and they were my parents were renting it out and because they knew that once the subway came, they knew the plans for the neighborhood. It was a historic house. They mm -hmm. bought in the winter, you know, learned the hard way how the neighborhood changed. But they knew there were plans to expand the subway line. So we stayed in there until drug needles in our lawn. I didn't go to school in the neighborhood. My parents, you know, knew how to work it so that my brothers and I didn't get affected by what was going on. So um, 
they kept the house, went out to Maryland, and NWA was more Columbia, Maryland, which is like you know a predominantly white environment, the Utopia City, which turned out to be a company town, you know, NSA town. Before people knew what NSA was, we didn't realize that we went out there. But you know the white kids out there were listening to NWA. You know, so anytime like the police would show up, they'd say, and we were like, fuck the police. <laughs> We all chanting and it's so cool, you know. So for me, that you know, then the you know, I, I just it didn't resonate with me as oh they're prophetic. It isn't until years later I listened. So I was like, okay, now I understand what they were talking about at the time. But you know, in terms of the cops, you heard stuff. I mean, growing up in a probably black city, going to Howard University, you know, you heard enough stuff. Her, you hear enough stories coming from people from California, and what was going on with the police, so that you know it wasn't any way that opened my eyes to it. And when the when the um, when the cops were found not guilty, wasn't a surprise. Also, uh, you know, it was disappointing. Wasn't a surprise because you know, again, uh, in D.C. at Howard University, we know anything about history. You're accustomed to justice not being served, and also in Washington D.C., I was there when Marion Barry was mayor, and you literally saw this motherfucker <laughs> smoking crack. And, you know, um, you know, you have a situation where he didn't get uh, the sentence everyone thought he was going to get, you know, in, so in his defense, the bitch set him up. Yeah. <laughs> Goddamn. I saw the tape and goddamn bitch uh, set him up. No, I, I, I was surprised by the verdict. I, I you know, I, I thought it was an open and shut case. But, you know, California justice was still and a lot of the p- police reforms it, it a hard place to get a job as a cop in California. I go. I know people come from Philly who try to become cops in California. Can't they don't meet the standards? And a lot of those changes were put in post 1992. So, yeah. so let's let's turn now to the follow up to to the post riot follow up by Dr. Dre. So NWA Splinters, Ruthless Record, first Ice Cube leaves, yeah. like we talked about last time. The main lyricist of the group, and the, and NWA soldiers on very successfully in a commercial sense. Their their follow up albums. Because of Sound Scan, I think their second album debuted at number one, mm-hmm, or, yep. or moved to number one after not being a number. The week Sound Scan happened, boom, NWA was number one, and they. But then they fall apart because Dre and and everybody figures out that Easy and Jerry Heller at Ruthless are allegedly ripping them off, and Shug Knight lures Dr. Dre away. Dre is the musical talent behind NWA, just like Ice Cube was the lyrical talent behind NWA. And Death Row Records is put together by Shug Knight. And Dre lays out a whole new blueprint for rap. I mean, they call it in the in the show an album that would reshape the future of hip hop and American popular culture. And on the hip hop front, it's because he stopped using samples and got a live band in there, and they would frequently be recreating parts they heard on mm. old records. But that's as old as recorded music. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if you listen to any blues record or arm any record, really, they learned most of the licks from somebody else. You know. Yeah, but I think he kicked back a lot to George Clinton because some of that oh, stuff yeah. on the yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. He yeah. did the right thing by by Clinton. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing is that yeah. it, it and was Roger it was, Troutman. Yeah, it was a twofold evolution one away from samples and it was because they had to because biz Markey and de la soul had been sued and the courts were clearly not sympathetic at all to rappers yep. or sampling yep. and it was also an evolution just a natural evolution as a new wave of musical people come along james brown was no longer the primary influence you had a new wave of artists who grew up on p-funk in the late 70s instead of james brown in the early 70s 
and synthesizers and all the different things that came along in the late 70s. Now Dre had synthesizers and could play with them, and and you know, and but he also had a jazz bass player in there, and 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 so it's it's a big sea change. And then the secondary thing is the immense popularity of the Chronic when it drops. I mean, it was on. I mean, NWA debuted at number one, but the Chronic went, I think, triple platinum in a year, and ultimately went like quad quadruple or quintuple platinum. And and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, who was basically the lead rapper on the, on the chronic. I mean, it could have been a Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg album. Snoop Dogg becomes a superstar. And I mean, at a whole nother level than NWA had ever reached. And that's the weird thing to me is like, I didn't like the chronic cause I didn't like the, the change in the samples. And I also had lost interest in NWA when they got so crude and violent when they lost ice cube, the, poetry was gone yeah it was evil evil snagging you're talking about yeah and it was just sort of this ugliness and and the chronic i think going back i I recognize that i was way off on the chronic this is a really good album this is a classic pop album a classic hip-hop album a classic r&b album but at the time i was put off by the music and the vibe. And I think they talked about this, like they've got the Arabian Prince talking about going to the studio when Dre was working on this and he didn't know anybody. And he was scared of the people that were surrounding Shoot Night, including Snoop Dogg. You know, the thing is, at the time. You know, go ahead. No, well, the thing is, when you talk about the vibe, I think it's something, I don't know if we discussed it last time. I don't think we did. I remember my parents, you know, they're public school teachers, high school teachers. My mother taught Eastern High School in Washington, D.C., East Capitol Street, which when they were talking about like Stand By Me and Joe Clark, Ralph Neal, who was the principal at the time, Eastern High School, was kind of like a corollary of that, right? So uh, in terms of taking a rough school and disciplinary and turning it around. And the thing that – one of the reasons why I couldn't really get into NWA – it's funny, although I got into Ice Cube, and you talk about the vibe, right, of NWA – that's problematic was I remember my parents talking about their frustration with the misogyny that was ramping up that they blamed it on the music, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, you're just talking about it. I was like, no, no, Alex, you don't understand. Like, you have to understand back in the day, uh, being ghetto was nothing that you aspired to. Uh, If you look at like Motown, like they would take kids that were rough and street and teach them how to be civilized and disciplined and the precision of the dance moves and the aspirations to escape your certain environment, which is kind of tying into the showstopper, Eugene, that you talk about this, which is phenomenal. People have to definitely listen to. And so it was that. And then they said also like, you know, before anyone is bitches and whores like that, they said, you've never heard We've never heard so many students become comfortable with that kind of terminology. And I was like, ah, you know what I'm talking about? No, Alexi, seriously, never have heard it. And so as time went on, I started to notice it as well. Like it was this, again, not saying misogyny wasn't there, but there was a certain kind of like people trying to emulate what they were listening to. And so that's one of the reasons why we talk about the chronic. I wasn't feeling NWA. I was more of a, into Public Enemy. I got into Ice Cube when he left NWA. Uh, and then when the chronic came around again, it would seem so steeped within that misogynistic yeah, culture, even the videos there. and everything. I was like, I just, I just was not. So I thought it was funny when you said that at the time you weren't feeling the chronic. I wasn't either. I was like, there's certain songs that was all right, and I like Snoop Dogg's flow. 
But I just, I just was which not is feeling Rick that record. Influence, by the way, what is that? Yep. Which is and, and does a Rick influence. I noticed yeah. that today, listen, going back because I've been listening to this first Snoop Dogg album and the and the Chronic a lot, getting ready for this, and there's. A spot on, I think the Snoop Dogg album where he's clearly quoting Slick Rick, like like yeah, the flow of course. And, he, and he and he comes out and he references it and he says, you know, if you're not down with it, you can, you know, blow yeah. me. I think is fundamentally what he says, you know. And right. on Doggy you know, Style, he like, covered Lottie, Lottie, he co- Dottie, Lottie Dottie, right? right. Yeah, Lottie, right? So. he co- he covered it on the... purpose. He claimed because to get, he's like, look, if white artists, I remember this back in the day. I mean, it was on Doggy Style. It wasn't on, you know, it was on the Chronic where he said that look, white people cover white song rock songs so the original artists get paid i'm covering songs i like because i want artists that rappers that i like to get paid and i want to introduce their music i mean that's what he claimed and i think that's a good thing but i want to say one thing about the the pimp culture that that really comes from iceberg slim in the 60s and 70s you know the first pimp that published his memoirs and they're brilliant brilliantly written books but i'd compare them with like carl pandram or some other those iceberg slim books about pimping are the most horrifying true crime books i've ever read because he really captures the vicious psychological abuse and the constant power struggle that goes on between a pimp and his you know and his hoes yeah, but you know, Ice T and Ice Cube both got their handles from Iceberg but, Slim. But Ice Cube and in in Who's the Mac, he says, and this is what one of the things that endeared me to him, he said, unlike Iceberg Slim, and some of them be claiming P I M P, no, I ain't going out that way. I'm just a straight up N I double G A. So his whole thing was trying to take himself apart from a certain kind Later. of aspect of the culture yeah. and say, like, I'm just straight up. Like, I'm not trying to act like I'm a pimp. But then years later, he sold out. It was yeah. a good day by saying, like, and a New Year blimp said, good year blimp said, Ice Cube's a pimp. I was like, dude, you just sold out. Well, I don't yeah. know. I think but, to, but, 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 but to go back, when you talk about when they started Death Row, you also remember there was a famous case I mean, we now know Snoop as the guy who hangs out with Martha Stewart, but there was a murder case, right? Yeah. And there was a strong possibility that he was going to go to jail for murder. That's um, right. And he made a and he made a song about it in full slick Rick fashion. Uh, murder was a case, right? Yeah. So, and he was a full on yeah. crip, and that was one of the reasons. Yeah. You know, I said, you know, the Arabian Prince was scared of him too because he was a crook and a and a hoodlum. And well, Dr. And Dre not... beat up D Barnes too before you know before the you know the Chronic, yeah. right? Remember uh, Tim Dog, who yep, I was supporting yep. from New York, you know, beating on D from yeah. Pump It Up, fuck with the dog, get fucked up. Yeah, well, but, no, 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 no. It was Dr. Dre who beat. No, Dr. Dre. Is that what I said? What I say? Yeah, yeah, Dr. Dre. You said, you said Tim Dog. Right? No, no, yeah, Tim no, Dog was, was a rapper who came out against yeah. against right. him yeah. for it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and but the the other for element, reason for reasons that were never entirely clear to me actually. So yeah, that is probably unknowable at this point. But the other cultural figures that were bringing that pimping vibe in was Rudy Ray Moore and other comedians mm, playing with, with the pimp, the pimp iconography and comedians. Well, yeah, right, because I like Dolomite. Guys, I like Dolomite. I could fuck with Dolomite, but I could not fuck with. The rapper pimps. Well, because it was serious, and I think that the the ensuing career of Shoot Knight shows that this was an ominous development. Mm. That there there were true bad apples 
in the barrel there and and a lot of people suffered you know and i mean there's still rumors that they deliberately infected easy with the hiv i mean and given what happened to to biggie and tupac and the speculation around that i'm not gonna you know again it's i'm not gonna say that it's impossible that easy got AIDS the traditional way, but I also don't think it's impossible that you're not put a hit on it. Uh, you know, like well, uh, you know, a, um, um, he played football down in Compton, and a woman who is now a pretty esteemed lawyer, her brother, she's from Compton, her brother played football with him, and you know, in private conversations with me, she's never had any good things to say about about Suge, and this was even before all the bad stuff had come uh, out. So, you know, it, it wasn't surprising to me when Dr. Dre finally pulled away. And his explanation rang really true as well. And he said, you know, sometimes you go to a party. I think this is almost a direct quote. And you're not enjoying being at the party. So what do you do? You leave. So Yeah. Well well said. And and there's a there's a couple other quotes I want to get in there though that I thought was interesting. The corrupt had a quote that uh the chronic was not just about what was going on, which is what NWA had been. The chronic was about how we felt about what was going on. And Ice Cube through and you know you could feel how dangerous the times are in that record and there is a sonic sinisterness to that record Mm -hmm. that nwa for all its sonic power and violence did not have i mean the the chronic has a bad vibe to it that's more ominous Mm -hmm. uh and and creepy than what nwa had and and, but it it was also i mean you it was also born it was also post rodney king yeah right and, and and much like West Coast hip hop, it was hip hop. It was also car movie music. Mm. So both the car music and that being the nexus point by which many people experienced bad coppery. Yeah, I think these all contributed to you know a mise en scene where it was just yeah, it was uh, 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 symphonic. The cars that go boom. SAT word. Yeah. You remember that no, one, no, no, I'm, I'm thinking more of the data niggas to cold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and I also think, though, and the, the last point Cube had was it's, it was more about you can still have fun no matter what obstacles you're facing. And that's an important thing to remember about The Chronic and Snoop Dogg's first album is it's catchy as shit. I mean, you know, there and the are... videos. Let's not under, understate the videos. This is when MTV, before they started, made it reality TV. Those videos were actually fantastic. I mean, it was the first yeah. time when I got to California. I, I, all I knew about Lowriders were that it was a song by War. Mm. That's it. I didn't. I didn't know the whole culture, and that was the first like blast of this, you know '62 uh, Chevy Impala with uh, hydraulics back to back and front to side. I didn't know what the hell that was until I got to California, and it was uh, you know. I mean, a lot of the cats I know from New York who moved out west and deep deep into that because it's like another kind of outlaw subculture and that was very much a part of it too and it was also that's how kids were listening to music back in the 90s was in their cars still well kids don't drive cars like they used to bro i live in low i I live in a local i see your kids in texas and i raise you kids in california come to my hood dates this is a i don't know a quantitative analysis driving rates for kids are way 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 down Way down across the I'm country. I'm gonna do the next show from out, from out, from outside by the stop sign in front of my house. I'm not saying you no kids see. are driving cars. I'm just saying the this we are the lowest rates of teens are waiting later and later to get their driver's license. Fewer and fewer teens in twenties own cars. Future fewer and fewer teens are driving cars. I mean that that car culture mm-hmm. thing, I'm sure is still 
clinging on in certain laggard areas, such as your neighborhood. You're, you're, ah, bro. <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you, like, my, my very angry college freshman roommate said when I was like, what's the big deal about not having a car? You know, because in high school, if I wanted to go on a date, I just got on the subway. Right. He goes, try getting on a bus to take a date out in California. Again, you don't do millennials it. and Zoomers are not even dating in the sense that we did. Oh, they fuck God. Okay, I, culture and they're yeah. hanging out in groups this is this is quantified social science and plus the kids that i know kids did you not, not hear this show stop where eugene what, what, was talking about how weird the negroes were in like california second into some bullshit. Um, but the reality was i only really have nine, teenage kids that's all yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whatever far fewer kids are driving now than we're driving in the 90s in the 90s they were all driving except in a few urban areas like new york where they had subway systems but otherwise the nation was a car culture but aren't you don't you think there could be a difference so between with the nation and california because california it's so steeped as a car culture right yeah. like I, that's i think california could be a laggard in that yeah. aspect but yeah you know my kid purpose, these... purposefully got four bicycles stolen so that she didn't have to bike to school four good bikes my it's like wait a second stolen. my kid and they're only how old? Got one stolen. Watch out, Nate. Yeah. Uh, we we <laughs> we are watching for the bikes to disappear off the porch at all times. But the point I was going to make is in the '90s, most of the nation's kids were in cars and listening to music. And I think you know when you pointed out the other week that EPMD was a car band, that I think that helped them get big nationally. Um, but the, the one line, I want to get another quote in, was the LL Cool J, it really blew the doors off the suburbs. It's like Dre said, I want to make a record for the projects, period. And then like every suburban kid in the win in the world had their face in the window. And that was so true. He didn't modify at all what he was saying. He didn't clean it up for the white kids. And that was kind of the genius of NWA in the first place, was mm. kind of make it a little more cartoony. Let's 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 make the hood a product and a and a fantasy land, you know. And and I think like to Alexi's point, you know, that was what put your parents off of it. And I think it put me off it to some extent, but it was a big part of the overall vibe of the nineties, which I think we can look back and say was a pretty amoral vibe. You know, it's the Clinton era. It's about making money and a little bit less racist than the 80s, but still, you know, grunge blows up, hip hop blows up, and the heroin that came with the grunge and the heroin chic and, and the gangster chic that came with the hip hop came too. Crack. Crack was an 80s thing, you know? And, yeah, and, you know, yeah, but actually making crack enterprises was people <laughs> i was shocked to discover in my low-income neighborhood the house that was across the street from me you know which had which was like a crack distribution point the cops busted them one time when i when i lived there and i read the newspaper that they had coffee cans stocked full of eighty thousand dollars here and eighty thousand dollars there that was serious serious Damn. money for me in in 1991 that Wait, was you said serious, serious money. money for you Seriously, for me, I heard all these coffee no. no, I mean may, maybe that was peanuts for them, but for me, in my perception, I was like, "Oh shit, Bob has got eighty grand in coffee. I'm gonna rob Bob," you know. But uh, so yeah, it was crack as an institution, and I think that's important because then ultimately that would set the scene for you understanding some of the choices that Fifty Cent made later on, right? Mm. Well, absolutely. But but the point I wanted to make was that. that 
the ominous vibe of the chronic sets the tone for the rest of the 90s like i would yeah. say the 90s kind of begin with the chronic and that yeah. you know the the, the 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 true 90s don't start until 93 when the chronic drops and that that sort of sets the tone for the rest of the decade which goes on until 9 11 hits um you know the long 90s or whatever or i guess it was the short 90s but anyway that's pretty much all the points i wanted to hit i gotta go back to this car thing eugene i <laughs> kids don't drive as much as they used to they do not that is i do not know a single kid and i know lots of them because i have a 17 year old 17 yeah i get the kids in california are driving but you know anecdote is not data and the data is bro bro you, you can't you can't walk anywhere here I know that. Me? I know that. But the rest yeah. of the country is oh yeah, okay. The rest of the country, walkable. you coastal elites. But even in places, how like dare Houston, you? Even even <laughs> in places like Houston, that are just as sprawling, teen drivers is way down. Even in California, teen driving numbers are down. Kids are waiting longer to get their license. Are uh, you you're gonna have to send me a link on that one? I'll send you. Uh, oh, send you sounds like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> but all of this is well off topic and. Um, uh, but what would a show well, be with the three of us without it going well off topic? Exactly. Hold on, yeah. hold on, hold on, hold on. Now, it's, it, it, I, I, I'm ashamed that I don't know this and I, I can't think of it, and it's kind of blowing my mind. What was Dr. Dre's follow on record to The Chronic? Took him years and years to put out. I know. Yeah. Chronic oh, 2001 or something. What was it? Doggy Style, Snoop Dogg. His Dr. Dre's was like the chronic, like 2000 or something. But the yeah, record right yeah. after that, Doggy Style was kind of like no, the. No, 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 no. I meant Dr. Dre's. So that's Dr. what. Dre's like chronic 2000 or. Chronic 2000. 2000. And it was long after the point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. But was it on Aftermath or was it on Death Row? It was it was not on death row. He was long gone from death row. Yeah, okay. So it was on a, he, the label he started called Aftermath. Can't do math. Something like that. Yeah, but that's yeah, okay. that's all, all, right, all, right. all that's off topic. But the real <laughs> Nate's regu- Nate is regulating, <laughs> and we're not even talking about the Warren G era. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the follow up was Snoop Dogg. And and doggy style. That was the follow up to the chronic produced by Dre, featuring Snoop Dogg. I mean, that, the whole gang was. was he was there. producing the videos, which made him suck. Yeah, you know, but um, but you know, that one by one, they all drift away from Death Row Records because it was shit. But the last one I wanted to get to was, what was your response, or when did you realize how big the chronic and hip hop had gotten? Because you know, it was on beyond. Oh wow, suburban white kids are into this and it's really popular. But it was holy shit, this is the most popular thing. Like it was two or three years later, I realized. I guess it was probably when Biggie Smalls came out and and Puff Daddy came out, and I realized this is pop. This this has taken the place of pop music in the culture. This is the most popular style of music bar none. When did you guys figure that out? Uh, pretty soon, man, because it was like a it was like a bomb. It was it was a 360 degree thing. All of a sudden, people who hadn't worn Pendletons were wearing Pendletons. People who hadn't worn khakis were wearing khakis. All of a sudden, people in New York City were were claiming claiming sets that they had never ever talked about. 
I mean, if you remember New York gangs from seventies and eighties, mm. you know, it was Jolly Stompers, the Latin Kings. It was like not nah, then all of a sudden people are bloods and crips in, in New York City. It was it changed everything. The video would snoop walking through the city, stomping on buildings. It was a major tectonic shift back east and in California, you know, uh cars. You know, I couldn't find parts for my 60, uh, was it my 67 Chevy? Impossible. I had to like send away to other states to get like stuff like bumpers because car culture, Japanese cats were coming here buying American cars and trying to have them shipped. It was crazy. It was from a point of view of like a guy who was in music to see how many units and how it was, it was pretty phenomenal. You got to remember, this is when you could still make money on, on, on music, you know, before Napster and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was gigantic. And I was and I was envious. Uh, for me, you know, uh, I was in D.C. at that time. When the Chronic was out. I was back in D.C. Um, you know, going to Howard. So go-go music was still going strong. So in terms of seeing a shift, I mean, go-go hadn't lost a step. So you know, I I wasn't watching rap music and saying, oh, this is like the big pop music now. I mean, it had been the big pop music like in the in the late 80s, you know, mid to late 80s, like, you know, in the Trouble suburbs. Trouble Funk. Trouble Funk, that's right. And R-A-R-E-S-S-E-N-C-E, -E -E, where essence. And Chuck Brown, the Soul Searches. That's right. right, right. Yes, yes. And we can address why Go-Go never broke out nationally on another day. Oh, there we go. Well, I, figure, I, figure, I think it was a live music. And then, yes. and then also, too, one of the things that you kind of touch on before that I think that you can't really be understated was about how incredibly violent that time was. Yep. I mean... Uh, you know that, that was part of the Pendletons and the, yep. the '60s muscle cars, and it was you know people getting I mean, shot up at house party, college house parties, and people yeah, getting pistol yeah, whipped was, in dorms and shit. Like it was yeah, yeah. People were like living. I mean, it was like okay, you had a few mafia cats like John Gotti who were seeing The Godfather a few too many times and start wearing expensive suits. <laughs> you know, Cecilia Mafia would be like, what the hell, tracksuit's fine for me. But this really permeated the culture. And it was, I mean, you know, I, I, the city that I'm living in now, East Palo Alto, had been the murder capital of America during that time period. It was largely fueled by, I think, this kind of um, mimicry of uh, mimetic desire that people had for making the music part of their lives. Mm. It was really pretty, pretty, pretty... Um, and I want to use a word like descriptive, like horrible or depressing. Um, corrosive. Corrosive is a good word. Yes. So that's that's a wrap for our discussion of the first season of Hip Hop Evolution. And we'll be back to talk about season two next week. Nate, Alexi, and Eugene will be back next week with a discussion of Season 2, Episode 1 of Hip Hop Evolution, The Southern Way, which takes our tale to Florida and Texas and introduces the two live crew, the Ghetto Boys and UGK. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.